0: So, we've begun <coughs> the range retreat. It's the first two after entering the range. It's normal in a range retreat that we <coughs> often make plans and set goals and start with a lot of determination in our practice then as time goes on, find it hard to sustain the same level of determination sometimes when our efforts drop then it's easier for The hindrances to come into the mind, doubt, uncertainty about our own ability to practice the purpose of the practice or the fruits, the results of the practice. someone was here, they even asked, well, if the Buddha entered Parinibbana 2,500 years ago, (coughs) then we have no chance to hear the Dhamma from a living Buddha. (coughs) Maybe we can't progress in our practice, there's no chance to attain enlightenment. And the Buddha, pointed out before he entered Parinibbāna that the Dhamma Vinaya is our teacher. The Buddha lives on through the Dhamma Vinaya. The Dhamma is the truth. Even if a Buddha doesn't arise in the world, that Dhamma, that truth is still there. If the, the Buddha enters Parinibbāna, the Dhamma is still there for us to understand, to practice, to realise. As he repeated often, one who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma, one who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. In the early days of Buddhism, there were no statues. The Buddha didn't encourage people to cling on to a physical, his physical attributes, physical appearance wanted them to contemplate more deeply the qualities of the mind of a Buddha and aspire to develop them for themselves. At most he said, well go and pay respects at the Bodhi tree or the Bodhi tree a reminder of the Buddha's efforts in his own practice and his own experience of enlightenment. We are fortunate in this modern era we also have enlightened teachers who have lived and proven that the Buddhist path is still as beneficial for humans as it always was. We have Lumpur Mam, we've inherited his teachings, the way he trained bhikkhus and then through Lumpur <clears throat> We have enlightened teachers in this era who've shown us the way how to practice through their own example, not just scholars teaching from what they've learned or intellectually understood, but people who sacrificed everything for the practice of the Dhamma Vinaya. Sajan <laughs> Chah <Chow> said, <clears throat> to bring this Dhamma to teach that he taught, then it came through sacrifice, giving up everything, even the own, his own fear of death to bring the dhamma that he was teaching forth. If you read his biography or listen to talks, he went to stay in cremation grounds <coughs> with incredible fear of ghosts, but willing to face up to that. contemplating what is fear, what's the cause of fear and how to release the mind from fear. Putting great effort, patient effort into bringing up mindfulness, practicing maybe even through the whole night sometimes, willing to sit and work with his own fear, seeing that it's more important to understand it and let go of it than just give in to it. As long as we give in to our defilements then we are always going to be trapped in saṃsāra, trapped in the round of suffering. So question, what is the cause of fear, or what is he afraid of? It's that fear of death, fear of ghosts, fear of the unknown, really it's the fear of death based on the attachment to these five kandhas. So he contemplated, facing up to that fear, remembering teachings he'd heard, and then contemplating, is there anywhere in this world that you won't die? There's nowhere. The Buddha actually said, there's nowhere in the world that somebody hasn't died before, a person or an animal. The number of lives we've lived in the past, the number of bodies we've had, the number of bones and skeletons we've had piles up to a huge mountain, bigger than the biggest mountain in the world. The number of tears we've shed in previous lives, it's more water than there is in the ocean. The way you escape fear is not through just running away from the place you're fearful, like in the cremation ground. As if you're afraid of death, well, death will follow you everywhere. And that fear and the suffering of it will follow you everywhere. There's nowhere that we haven't died or couldn't die. Contemplating like that, he brought himself, his own mind, to the end of fear. He said fear never came back after that one particularly well recorded night that he talked about. Similarly, he would <clears throat> seek out forests sometimes where they said they were wild animals like tigers. He actually put himself on a path where it was reputed tigers, large tigers would walk, come and go. Again, contemplating the fear, the attachment to the body, the canvas. Contemplating, well, if there's the karma, the karmic causes are there, have harmed a a being in the past, and it's the result to come, well, maybe the tiger will come and it will harm me. If there's no karma, there's no cause, then it won't come, or it won't harm me if it does come. Just giving up all the proliferation and the Sense of self in that situation, just accepting karma and the fruits of karma, understanding cause and result. And in the end, nothing happened anyway. And this is the way he practiced. He said, We practiced sincerely, fully. He said, The bhikkhu is one who is seen the danger in samsara, seen the danger in the endless round of birth and death. Even in one lifetime, the endless round of suffering, states of unhappiness, depression, anger, fear, all the different kinds of mental suffering in one life we have, physical suffering, aches and pains and illness. One life is enough to understand this point. Then if you had many lives, just multiplying the same kinds of suffering over and over again. So a bhikkhu, one who has seen the danger in this and wants to seek release from it. Another way they refer to a bhikkhu is one whose mind is far from danger, far from the enemy. The enemy of a human mind is really the defilements, greed, anger, delusion, the way they manifest because they're the cause of suffering. Well, a bhikkhu is one who puts their, themselves far from the defilements. We don't follow them. We recognize them and let them go. We don't follow them in our speech, our actions, and even mentally we work to let them go. <clears throat> so this is how Nphu Man Lumpur taught. This is our own good fortune that we've been born in a time where there are these enlightened masters who have passed on the way of practice. And we still have the Dhamma Vinaya to guide us to determine our behavior and help us decide what is wise behavior, what is not, what is fruitful, beneficial behavior and what is not through body, speech and mind. And Lumpur Cha was always encouraging us to contemplate our experience. The old confusion between Samatha and Vipassana. So how much Samatha do I need to develop? How much calm and Samadhi do I need to develop? When should I practice Vipassana? When should I develop insight? Lumpur Cha would... Tend to discourage us from thinking too much in terms of levels of samadhi, but more just, well, can you contemplate? Can you contemplate your experience as a human being? Mindfully reflect on the true nature of your experience. If you can, then you're probably peaceful enough. If you can't, then you need to develop more mindfulness, more samadhi through practice. So somebody practicing with right view, it's a self-regulating process. If you're honest, you look at your mind and say, can I contemplate the Dhamma, can I see defilement, recognize it for what it is? If you can't, then we need to put more effort into developing mindfulness. As we practice mindfulness over and over again, then the mind starts to experience more states of calm, It's those states of calm which help highlight defilement to us, makes it easier to observe, recognize different mental states rooted in greed, hatred, delusion, as they arise. Even when the hindrances are very strong and coming in in all directions, different kinds, especially when mindfulness is weak, like when we're tired, when we're ill, when we have different kinds of suffering arise in our life, even when the hindrances are like that, we can always bring up mindfulness of a different state of mind and just keep following on, watching. Where does it lead? Because the hindrances don't lead to peace of mind, they always lead to disturbance. They lead to the mind getting clouded, take us away from the Dhamma, back towards... Darkness, and they don't lead to anything useful to us. You keep watching them, even that, even when the hindrances are taking over the mind. Even that can be a, a reflection. What use are they? Little by little, one gets weary of the hindrances. <clears throat> when we bring up mindfulness more and more, then eventually the mindfulness starts to stick starts to be more continuous, then we can actually start to experience a little bit of separation from the hindrances. That detached awareness where we can watch without getting so involved or caught up in the sense of self, self-identification self starts to fade and there's more just silent witnessing, knowing the way things are. And we can all experience that sometimes, but we need to build on that experience and develop it so it's deeper, more sustained, more longer lasting. So we have a retreat time like this, we can really put effort into sitting and walking, using the quietness of the forest, and the lack of distraction to really develop that inner knowing. Traditionally, the Buddha described how suffering arises and how the hindrances come up through sense contact, unmindful sense contact. So, say, with seeing, we have an eye, healthy eye. There's a form to be seen. Eye consciousness arises. With eye consciousness, you get contact. And with contact, feeling arises, waitana pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor pleasant, nor unpleasant, of one kind or another. And without mindfulness present, this is what feeds dunha, craving. Craving feeds attachment, upadana. <clears throat> and you multiply that by six, because there's five, external senses and then the mind itself as one sense so we're constantly having doorways and pathways where kilesa can arise craving for craving for, against leading on to attachment leading to becoming ultimately leading to more birth rebirth And this is where we're studying and learning in our daily life Establishing enough mindfulness to see this process at work. How with ignorance as a cause, craving, attachment arises and based on sense contact. It's going on all the time, every moment of every day. So all the raw materials are there for us to contemplate, to observe, to understand how suffering arises as an experience. And we have the tools, the skills, the techniques available to us to free the mind from suffering at the very same place. So it's up to us to use that. Use that knowledge, use that, the techniques, use our time in this way to practice, contemplate. A lot of our contemplation is... Separating things out, you know, the experience of this body and mind, the Kendas, is when there's not much mindfulness, not much wisdom operating, it's always, we take the whole thing, we're lost in the concept, the idea of self, me, mine, myself, sense of ownership, of experience, makes everything stick together as one big lump, one big mess. But the more <clears throat> mindfulness we bring up, and the more sustained the mindfulness is, starts to separate things out. We still have groups of experience. We have physical form, feelings, thoughts, memories. But we're starting to separate out the component parts of experience through mindfulness and through the clarity that it brings, the ability to observe with wisdom. So You get a sense of detachment and from that there's some peace arises. If we keep looking back at the body with mindfulness, observing it, using the reflection on the four elements, you can see there's the hard part of the body, the earth element. We're always caught up in the labels, your teeth, skin, bones, hair. But if we keep focusing mindfully John, just on an element as an element, just a part of nature, then it's just the earth element, the, the pile of the earth element in the body, the pile of the water element, the air element, temperature and heat element, And this is taking the mind through to the reality of that there is no self in this body, no lasting person, being, me, you, us, them. All the ideas and concepts that we add on to our experience we're stripping them away, separating them out through that contemplation. What does it do to the mind when you contemplate the body as just an element, four elements Piles of four elements grouped together, joined together. Once that sense of self departs, then there's coolness in the mind, dispassion, detachment. The normal passions of lust and anger fade. We just know the body the way it is and we can see how it is ultimately impermanent not to be clung onto because it's bound, heading towards decay, degeneration. It will not last. You see that in your own body, then you reflect on other people's bodies, just the same, made up of the same four elements, the same things. And then all our loves and hates, based on perceptions of personality, person. I like this one, I don't like that get challenged. Those ideas, concepts, attachments don't stand up to the power of mindfulness and wisdom clearly discerning the way things are. If you can see the four elements in yourself, you see them in others, then what is there to love? What is there to hate? Exactly the same. Pile of earth there, fire and water over here. Pile of earth there, fire and water over there. Same things, same component parts that build up a human being. Where is there to love or hate in that? This is obviously a very profound insight. It doesn't negate all the other useful conventions we have that we use in the world. practice the Brahma-viharas, we we live in the world, we help each other, and so on. But this is an internal reflection that comes up. If you complete and continue to contemplate this body as four elements, then that sense of attachment to a person necessarily drops away. And the sense of love and hate, based on that, drops away. So you don't go around... Loving this person, hating that. You're just loving and hating the four elements. It doesn't make any sense anymore. There's no point holding on to that way of thinking. So the proliferation, the memories, the feelings previously generated don't last, don't sustain. The more we reflect in this way, then the more peace and quiet we experience in our own mind. Even though we're living in a world that is f- full of the opposite, full of the turmoils of all everybody's attachments, their loves and hates and all the trouble that comes from that, our own reflection and our own, own lifestyle which supports that will help us to just be at peace with the way things are, even if the whole world is in a turmoil. As we practice mindfulness, it's the same with our mental experience, even though it's more refined, harder to keep up with, keep pace with, because the mind is so fast. Thoughts, emotions, moods come and go, mental states, different sense contact pops up and goes away very fast. (coughs) But if you keep contemplating with mindfulness some of the patterns form you you can see the, the patterns the habits of mind the experiences and you can start to see mental states are the same as the physical body you can reduce mental states down to the level of being elements without a self a person a being the sense of ownership starts to fade. If there's strong mindfulness, we can look back and see a thought arising, passing away. And the mind doesn't have to grab onto that as a self. Feeling arising, passing away, not self. Memories, perceptions, sense consciousness, arising, passing away, not self. Little by little, one's more aware of the underlying awareness of the mind, the jitta, but without constantly forming a sense of self around our mental experience. Then we can use this understanding, you can use it to train the mind. At the same time as we're looking at the mind as not self, we're also training it. Developing the awareness of your dhamma, in the mind. There's the Dhamma that is wholesome, Dhamma that is unwholesome. The unwholesome is the four, uh, the five hindrances, how they come up, how they arise, how they pass away, their nature. The wholesome Dhamma, we can contemplate 37 wings of awakening, the Bodhipakya Dhammas, in the Eightfold Path. The five strengths, the five faculties, 5 the four right efforts, four my factors of foundations of mindfulness, the four roads to success, and the seven factors of enlightenment. And these are the wholesome Dhammas. How do they arise? We're still developing the insight there, not self. But you understand Dhamma is Dhamma, meaning the foundation of mindfulness, dhamma, mental states that are wholesome, unwholesome, how to bring them up, how to contemplate them. When mindfulness is strong, then we can contemplate, and you know, this is how the factors of enlightenment start. Sati dhamma vichyaya. With mindfulness you can investigate the dhamma, and this brings a sense of peace, coolness. You get pasati, Piti, sukha, and <coughs> samadhi, and then eventually equanimity arise. We know mindfulness, no factors of enlightenment. And this is how we contemplate bringing the mind to sense of peace with mindfulness, and then contemplating both the physical side of this existence and the mental side. Even the negative mental states we have, we can contemplate them as Dhamma. If, as we train more, then even state of suffering, you know, f- f- feeling fed up, bored, frustrated desires, anger, ill will, sloth and torpor and so on, is still a fruit for insight understanding how they arise through unwise attention to different objects, how they pass through developing mindfulness and wisdom. But in their nature, they're still mental states that arise, pass away. In the past, they've arisen and passed away. If they arise in the future, they'll still arise, pass away. The nature of Dhamma is like that. All phenomena are impermanent. In the end, you're getting to know thoroughly, a a mental state, a wholesome mental state, an unwholesome mental state. Its nature is to arise from a cause. The cause changes, passes away. So if we bring up mindfulness, say when we're experiencing some ill will or some restless agitation of mind, you reflect, in the past, this has arisen and passed away. What I'm experiencing right now will arise, pass away. If it comes up in the future, it will arise, pass away. Little by little, you're training your mind to understand the deeper nature of these phenomena. They're impermanent. And what is impermanent is not a self. These are conditions, mental states. This is where some sense of relief or lightness arises in the mind. When we have some insight, there's that sense of Mm -hmm. detachment coming, so you feel lightness. When there's no mindfulness, no insight, the candors, the body and mind feel heavy. Thoughts feel heavy. Feelings feel heavy. That's why we can't find happiness through craving and attachment. The mind feels heavy, actually feels burdened. When we, when it's operating under craving and attachment, when we bring up the Dhamma, it feels unburdened, feels lighter, and there's a sense of letting go. As because much of our life is involved with living very simply, and you know, we don't have a lot of possessions, we live in nature. So we exposed to the weather and the conditions, we don't have a lot of distraction. That will tend to bring up some stress, some discomfort in our daily routine. Sometimes it's too wet, too cold. We have to rely on a lot of patience, but we can use the the situation as it is to learn from our own experience. Maybe it seems, sometimes it seems cold and wet on a mountainside like this. Imagine if you're on the flats, maybe you actually get flooded. When I was younger, I spent a vasa with Ajampiak and Lamluka on the edge of Bangkok. As the pansa went on, there's more and more rain. The whole monastery filled up with water, so you couldn't walk anywhere without being wet. Of course, the water is full of bacteria and germs, pollution, animal urine, faeces. So you'd get different kinds of skin diseases. called it Hong Kong foot. Your skin would go rotten between the toes and wherever there was a blemish. If you got any kind of cut, you would immediately start weeping, pus. It went on like that for months, and you just would have to walk around the place in this dirty water. you walk out of the monastery, go on Bindabar in water. The only way we could deal with it was make little brick bridges. you put a few bricks up and then put a plank of wood across the top for metres and metres around the monastery so we could try and walk and get out of the water, but the bridges were always collapsing. You meet someone on the bridge, you have to step off it anyway. If they're coming the other way, if it's a senior monk or someone, in the end, had to learn to walk chonkrom on a plank of wood because there was nowhere left to walk. Those people living in kutis, which had a ground floor, they couldn't stay in their kuti anymore, it was just completely full of water, it was about a meter deep. Had to move upstairs. Took several months until the level of the water subsided. Once you've been through that, then you appreciate a mountain. The mountains don't flood; the water drains away. There's some advantages. We have to put up with many things, as because cold, heat. We don't get food all the time. Don't have food in the evening. Sometimes you eat new food and then you digest it all and you feel hungry. You don't have many of the comforts that we formerly had in lay life. And that will naturally bring up desires, desire for distraction, frustrations. If we can use it as a food for contemplation, you can see that as a challenge. Can you go through these different challenges without letting them become hindrances for the mind, without giving rise to greed, hatred and delusion. You keep contemplating established mindfulness as you get different reactions to the situations you're in and take it all as a learning rather than just something to indulge in your (coughs) happiness or unhappiness with the way things are. Wherever you are, you can do that. And the place of practice is here and now, wherever you are is the place of practice. It's not some other place over there or in another part of the country or in another country. The place of practice is right here and now where you are in this body that's five or six foot high, a few foot wide. This is where the Buddha said we should practice contemplating this body and mind as it is, bringing the mind to see things as it is, in an undeluded way. The more we do that, the more we can bring our minds to peace, whatever's coming up. So I'll leave you with these words to contemplate in. We can carry on sitting until you hear the bell.